Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Love and Obedience. It's based upon the lectionary readings from May 17th, 2020. If you love me, Jesus tells his disciples in our gospel reading this week, you will keep my commandments. And again, they who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. Love and obedience. According to Jesus, the two are inseparable. We can't honestly claim to love Jesus if we don't obey him. Do we really believe this? Do we find it jarring? Is it just me, or are we supposed to find the juxtaposition of love and obedience in this text a bit overwhelming? I suppose we ought to begin by asking, what commandments? What exactly has Jesus commanded us to do? Well, in the chapter directly preceding our lectionary reading, John gives us the answer. A new command I give you, Jesus says. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. In fact, this commandment, Jesus's Maundy Thursday mandate that his disciples love one another, is the only recorded commandment in John's Gospel. Everything else we say and do as believers in Christ comes down to this. Prayer, evangelism, repentance, generosity, asking, seeking, almsgiving, truth-telling, honoring, serving, feeding, sharing, all of it in the end comes down to love. The essential question, the searing question is this, do we love one another as Jesus has loved us or do we not? What's painful about this commandment, of course, is how badly we've boshed it over the last 2,000 years. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson names the irony this way, This new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, and yet it is profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. When I look at my own life, it's not too hard to name why I perpetually fail to obey Jesus' dying wish. Love is vulnerable-making, and I'd rather not be vulnerable. Love requires trust, and I'm naturally suspicious. Love spills over margins and boundaries, and I feel safer and holier, policing my borders. Love takes time, effort, discipline, and transformation, and I'm just so darn busy. But Jesus did not say, this is my suggestion. He said, this is my commandment, meaning it's not a choice. It's not a matter of personal preference. It's a matter of obedience to the one we call our Lord. Maybe now it's easier to understand why Jesus' conflation of love and obedience feels so jarring. Essentially, he is commanding us to love other people, whether we want to or not, whether we like them or not, and we are not used to thinking about love in terms of obedience to a command. Can we be ordered to love? Does love obey decrees? My guess is most of us would say no. Shaped as we are by Hollywood, by romance novels, by Valentine's Day sentimentality, we tend to think of love as spontaneous and free-flowing. We fall in love. Love is blind, it happens at first sight, it breaks our hearts, its course never runs smooth, etc., etc., etc. Real love, many of us might say, has nothing to do with calculated obedience. Real love is an emotion, a feeling. In one sense, our instincts are correct. Authentic love can't be manipulated, simulated, or rushed without suffering distortion. Those of us who have children understand full well that commanding our bickering kids to love each other doesn't work. 
The most we can do is insist that our children behave as if they love each other. Share your toys. Say sorry. Don't hit. Use kind words. But these actions, often performed with gritted teeth and rolling eyes, aren't the same as what Jesus is talking about in John's Gospel. Jesus doesn't stop at saying, act as if you love. He doesn't give his disciples or us the easy out of doing nice things with clenched or indifferent hearts. Nor would I want him to. Nothing feels as hollow as a loving act performed mechanically. Moreover, I doubt that the people who flocked to Jesus would have done so if they sensed that his compassion was thin or forced. He says, love one another as I have loved you. As in, for real. As in the whole bona fide package. Authentic feeling. Honest engagement. Generous action. Honestly, doesn't it sound like Jesus is asking for the impossible? At the same time, though, don't you yearn for what he's describing? Imagine what would happen to us, to the church, and to the world if we took this commandment of Jesus seriously. What could Christendom look like if we obeyed orders and cultivated this impossible love? I ask these questions fearfully because I don't always know how to answer them, even for myself. I mean, I know fairly well how to do lovey things, how to act as if, and maybe that's a valuable way to begin. I know how to make care packages for the homeless, or bring dessert to the church potluck, or send checks to my favorite charities. But do I know how to love as Jesus loved? To feel a depth of compassion that's gut-punching? To experience a hunger for justice so fierce and so urgent that I rearrange my life in order to pursue it? To empathize until my heart breaks? Do I want to? Most of the time, I'll be honest, I don't. I want to be safe. I want to keep my circle of affection small and manageable. I want to choose the people I love based on my own affinities and preferences, not on Jesus' all-inclusive commandment. Charitable actions are easy, but cultivating my heart, preparing and pruning it to love, becoming vulnerable in authentic ways to the world's pain, those things are hard, hard and costly. And yet, Jesus' words in this gospel are crystal clear. It is not sufficient or even meaningful to profess love for Jesus while we hold ourselves apart from our fellow human beings. To love Jesus is to love others, all others, the lover, the friend, the neighbor, the companion, but also the alien, the stranger, the misfit, and the enemy, the ones with whom we agree and the ones with whom we emphatically disagree, the ones we naturally like and the ones we don't. If our lectionary this week ended with Jesus' call to obedience, I would despair. But mercifully, there's more to the story. We don't have to love all by ourselves. We don't have to do the impossible on our own. Jesus' desire is not that we wear ourselves out trying to conjure love from our own meager resources. Rather, his commandment is accompanied by a promise. I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. The Advocate is God's own Spirit, God's own heart living within us. This Spirit, Jesus promises us, will be in us, making possible the startling, counterintuitive obedience which is love. This Spirit will abide within and among us, creating holy places where authentic, self-sacrificial human love can take root and flourish. The Spirit's resources are inexhaustible. Long after our natural stores are depleted, the Spirit of God will love in, among, and through us. As is so often the case in our lives as Christians, Jesus' commandment leads us straight to paradox. We are called to action via rest. 
calls to give the love we receive, called to become the beloved children we are. The commandment, or better yet, the invitation, is to drink our fill of the source, spill over to bless the world, and then return to the source for a fresh infilling. This is our movement, our rhythm, our dance, over and over again. This is where we begin and end and begin again. Love me by keeping my commandments, Jesus says. These are finally not two separate actions. They are one and the same. We love because we are loved. We obey Christ because we are in Christ. The love we are commanded to share is a love we are endlessly given. You in me and I in you. The definition of love. For books this week, Dan reviews David McCullough's The Pioneers, the heroic story of the settlers who brought the American ideal west. At the Treaty of Paris in 1783 that ended the American Revolutionary War, one of the concessions made by the British was to relinquish all control of the Northwest Territory to the newly formed United States. That howling wilderness north and west of the Ohio River doubled the size of the U.S. overnight. Bigger than France, it contained what would become the five states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Michigan. At the time, though, the Ohio country did not contain a single road, town, church, school, or store. David McCullough's newest book describes how this Northwest Territory was settled. The story begins four years after the Treaty of Paris. On June 24, 1787, a pastor and polymath named Manasseh Cutler left Massachusetts all alone in his horse and buggy. Traveling about 30 miles a day, he arrived in Philadelphia, where on July 13th he negotiated with the Continental Congress. There was no president yet. One of the most important legislative acts in American history, the Northwest Ordinance. The new ordinance guaranteed the freedom of religion, promised free and universal education, and strictly prohibited slavery. Five months later, on December 3rd, 48 pioneers set out for the 700-mile journey to the headwaters of the Ohio River. They eventually arrived on the banks of the Ohio River at what would later be called Marietta, the epicenter of the settlement of the entire region. McCullough tells the story primarily through the experiences of five major characters. The difficulties, dangers, and privations that those first pioneers endured were legendary, not the least of which was their relationship within many Native American tribes. By the turn of the 19th century, in the single decade 1800-1810, the population of Ohio skyrocketed from 45,365 to 230,760. By 1815, Cincinnati was the fastest-growing city in America. The advent of steam power meant that boats could travel an astonishing 100 miles a day up and down the Ohio River. By that time, the likes of Charles Dickens made their own trips to the Ohio country to see the miracle of the newly settled Midwest. The master historian McCullough has won two Pulitzer Prizes, two National Book Awards, and a Presidential Medal of Freedom for his previous work. When I read The Pioneers, it enjoyed a long ride on the New York Times bestseller list. For films this week, Dan reviews Judy. Judy Garland will always be remembered as the wholesome Dorothy in Wizard of Oz. That film was released in 1939, and by the time Garland was well on her way to a lifetime of personal struggles that ended with her death at the age of 47 from an accidental barbiturate overdose. This biopic features an Oscar-worthy Renee Zellweger as Garland, 
and except for repeated flashbacks to her childhood, it covers the last six months of her life. By 1969, Garland's life was in freefall. She was pretty much homeless and unemployable. Her decades of alcohol and drug addiction were well known, as were her financial problems. She would marry five times. She had been used and abused by Hollywood and her own money managers. And so, as a last resort, she went to London to do a five-week run at a nightclub. She died in London about six months after those shows. This is a painful movie to watch. I resonated with Garland's daughter, Liza Minnelli, who criticized the film. Despite Zellweger's remarkable performance, she sang all the songs herself. In some ways, it felt more like one more financial exploitation of a personal tragedy. And as a final irony, Zellweger herself has recently returned from a six-year hiatus from Hollywood because she did not like the person she was becoming in that environment. And lastly, for poetry, Edwina Gately's Call to Say Yes. We are called to say yes, that the kingdom might break through to renew and to transform our dark and groping world. We stutter and we stammer to the lone God who calls and pleads in New Jerusalem in the bloodied Sinai Straits. We are called to say yes, that honeysuckle may twine and twist its smelling leaves over the graves of nuclear arms. We are called to say yes, the children might play on the soil of Vietnam where the tanks belched blood and death. We are called to say yes, the black may sing with white and pledge peace and healing for the hatred of the past. We are called to say yes so that nations might gather and dance one great movement for the joy of humankind. We are called to say yes so that rich and poor embrace and become equal in their poverty through the silent tears that fall. We are called to say yes, that the whisper of our God might be heard through our sirens and the screams of our bombs. We are called to say yes to a God who still holds fast to the vision of the kingdom for a trembling world of pain. We are called to say yes to this God who reaches out and asks us to share his crazy dream of love. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for May 17th, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.